Welcome, everyone, to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, and we're here again with the famous Michael Smith. Michael, you want to kick us off with uh, what happened in Texas last week? Well, sure, Wayne. Uh, I think the biggest news in Texas was last year, our uh, annual Eastern District of Texas bench bar resumed uh, in Plano. Uh, we had to cancel it last year because of the pandemic, but we were able to have it in person this year, and it was really great seeing everyone. We had almost 570 registered, and our previous high was in the high 400s, so we were very excited at the registrations. That really wasn't unexpected because we had over 100 people that flew to Texas for the planning meeting back in August, so we knew we'd have a lot of people there, but it was, people were just very glad to be out. Um, we didn't do the second night dinner at the Cowboys uh, Stadium this year. We went to the Texas Rangers new ballpark in Arlington, Globe Life Field. Of course, this being Texas, they'd already taken up the baseball diamond and put down the uh, football field because they'll be hosting the Army Air Force game on November the 6th. So we couldn't go on the field because they were still setting it up for football. But we went around, we went and uh, had a line where attendees could practice in the Rangers batting cages. They fired balls at us. Everybody was wanting to know what the speed was. And I said, and they told us it was 45, uh, which I understand is a little slow, but I'm not a baseball guy. But, but we got to eat all the ballpark food. They have areas where you can go through a buffet and it has every food that is in the ballpark in one place. So it was incredibly unhealthy, but we got tours of everything and it was just a great chance for everybody to socialize and visit and tell stories because obviously baseball is important to a lot of the people that are there and they enjoyed visiting about it. So a great conference, very excited to get to do it. It's good to start hearing about people getting together again. You and I have talked about the practice of law can be pretty isolating, um, and then practice of litigation can set up a lot of adversarial situations. Uh, dinner, beer, hot dog at the ballpark helps make litigations go a little bit easier, and people reach some, some reasonable resolutions on things. Oh, it absolutely does. I talked to a number of people that are that are opposite me in cases right now, and it was a great to, vi to visit with them, and oh yeah, it's good to be working with you again on such and such case. And the next day when I got back to the office, I could already tell if the problem came up, I was going to be able to, to email people, realize that we were both trying to come to a reasonable solution on something. It really was great for that reason. And of course, we get to hear a lot of great lawyers and a lot of good judges talking to us about what works and what doesn't work. A lot of in-house counsel. I learned things, a lot of things that I didn't know. Well, Michael, I saw the, the panel that you were moderating, incredibly important everywhere, but especially for people from the Eastern District and Western District, because it's drawing so much media attention these days. Uh, you know, everybody's combing through that docket looking for stories. And I think your panel was on how to handle the media. Any nuggets come out of that? Oh, it was. Eric, Eric Finley from Tyler and I co-moderated that one. And we had uh, Morgan Chu, Wes Hill, and Tom Melsheimer on it. And we just had a wonderful time talking to lawyers about what's helpful when you're talking to the media. What are your goals? What do you need to look out for? What do you need to do? Uh, I reached out and talked to Scott Graham uh, to get a reporter's perspective so we could get that in front of the panel and talk about what they can tell us. Well, of course, Tom Melsheimer's had cases with high-profile plaintiffs like Mark Cuban, so he had great stories on that. Morgan Chu had had an enormous amount of experience representing 
uh, media groups. So he gave us the benefit of that. And it, it, it was really very helpful. But, but again, it all kind of came back to the same thing that we hear from judges. Everything is a race to credibility and your credibility is everything. And when you have an opportunity to talk to a reporter about your case, uh, that's a priceless opportunity to help make sure that the, that the correct facts are getting out there. But I'll tell you one thing, I have to give Wes Hill credit. He said one thing that I'd never heard from anyone else. He said, before he talks to a reporter, he asked them, well, what do you think this case is about? What do you think it's about? And then the reporter, he said, invariably, will have a very different understanding of what's going on in the case. And that then tells him, okay, well, here's where I'm starting from. So that was one of the things that I'm going to take back and think about, because I do talk to a lot of reporters about cases. And while I can't talk to them about my cases a lot of times, because we refer those to lead counsel or to other people that have authority to, to talk on behalf of the client, it's still helpful to know, kind of double check, what does a reporter know about the case? What do they think is going on? And what can I give them to help them accurately explain to their readers what's going on? Because it's obviously we see a lot of stories about the cases we work on in the media, and we want to help make sure that the right accurate facts are getting out. It's interesting that in my, my new role here at Berkeley, I get quite a few phone calls from the press not asking for a Berkeley view or anything like that, but just asking for an explanation of certain legal principles. And what I found is nearly every one of these reporters wants to get it right. And these are complex, nuanced issues. I think they reach out to me sometimes because they don't necessarily trust the lawyers to give them the non-slanted scoop, which I understand that, you know, if you're an advocate, you've got to advocate, but um, you can see that loss of credibility causing reporters to go elsewhere for information. Well, and that was something that Scott relayed to me is it's not helpful to you or to him if you tell him, oh, yeah, the jury and the verdict, they, they uh, found for us on such and such. And then he finds out later that the second part of the verdict form found against you on something that was just as important. Well, I mean, given the whole story, what, what I try to do uh, when I can is, of course, we may not have the final verdict for a day or two, but I'll have the verdict form and I'll mark it up as the jury's doing it. And what I'll do is I'll go through that with the reporter. I'll offer to send them my copy of it so they can see it, how it fits together. But the reporter does often need to know, well, what's really going on here? It looks like you won, you won five out of seven things here. So that looks like a big win for you. And you may have to explain, or, or you lost five out of seven. That looks like a big loss for you. And you have to explain, all we had to do was win one or two. And that's what we needed. That's all we needed. They need the context, and uh, it, is a, it is a great opportunity to help them and uh, give them an opportunity to uh, make sure that the, the accurate facts get out. We all have an obligation, in my view, to help the public understand what we do and what the justice system is about, and I think this is a way we can help do it. Well, if we, we move on to, to Marshall, there was a really interesting trial we had a couple of double wins for uh, uh, defendants in Texas uh, patent courts in the last couple of weeks, and this is one of them. This was a case that my understanding was uh, had not been scheduled for trial, and Judge Gilstrap asked the parties to go ahead and try liability on it. The validity issues and the damages issues have been bifurcated, so the only thing that got tried was liability plus 
a interesting question, a 101 question where the jury was asked where the defendant had proven by clear and convincing evidence, the asserted claims involve only technologies and activities that were well understood, well understood, routine and conventional from the perspective of a person of ordinary skill in the art as of the relevant date. Of course, we recognize that as the factual question for a 101 finding. Well, the jury found that none of the claims were infringed. The jury found that all of that was well understood and routine, which will translate into a finding in the defendant's favor on 101. So it, it, it was a good week for the defendant in that case. It was a particularly bad week for the plaintiff because I understand some of their lawyers got sick during the trial. It was not a, exclusively a COVID issue and didn't require stopping the trial but the plaintiff did have some uh, health issues. I understand those have resolved, but it did mean that the trial was not the smoothest that I've seen uh, from what I understand. And fortunately, again, I get a lot of this from talking to people at the bench bar last week that were involved in the trial that saw what was happening. And they could say, yeah, here's what the verdict says, but let me tell you, here's kind of what was going on that may have played a part in that. Because otherwise I would not have known the damages had been bifurcated. It was kind of odd the question wasn't there. Well, they'd been bifurcated. The plaintiff's damages expert had had a bad day earlier in the year. So um, a very interesting case. Setting aside the procedural hiccups in this particular trial, you know, this issue about patentable subject matter uh, being tried to a jury, which seems to be maturing as a defense more in Texas than some other courts, that are just invalidating claims on 12B motions. But this seems like a terrifying defense for patent owners. Oh, I think it is. And, and off the top of my head, we've had several cases in the Eastern District where a question like this was submitted. Off the top of my head, I don't recall a plaintiff ever winning this. And I do think it's, it's a very, very dangerous question here because you're asking the jury to answer a factual question but I don't know that they understand the effect that that's going to have. They're simply answering a factual question. So you might have, I know that I've, I've talked to jurors that were hesitant to invalidate a patent. For different reasons, they were simply unwilling to second guess the patent office. They were unwilling to go that far. Uh, they might find the claims not infringed, but they were hesitant to invalidate. Well, here, they may not know that that's what's effectively going to happen. So it's a very, very dangerous question uh, for the plaintiff. So this is kind of, I think, the opposite of what people thought it was going to be. They thought that allowing there to be a factual issue resolved by the jury would work out in plaintiff's favor. And what it seems to do is actually run them into a brick wall at the end of the case in many cases. Well, let's move on to the, the Western District. Talk about Judge Albright's new discovery procedures. Right. We did get on uh, October the 8th, so it was uh, uh, Friday before last, we got a new OGP from uh, Judge Albright. This one will be 3.5. There are a few minor changes in it, uh, with one exception. There are major changes to the discovery dispute procedures. And essentially, Judge Albright picked up a practice that he I heard him credit to uh, Judge Mazant where you don't file motions to compel, you don't, you don't file motions for protective order, you call the court, you get a phone call, and you explain the issue, and then the court gives you guidance on it. So we, we're used to not doing written motions. But the courts tried several different ways of getting those issues in front of the court um, 
over the last couple of years, and this is a revision to that. What happened before this order was you would submit a chart and you would fill in boxes saying what the issue was and what it is you wanted. But the problem from some practitioner's perspective is I can tell you, okay, the issue is number of interrogatories and I want 40. The problem is I don't get to tell the court why I want 40. And what we were told by court staff on some of the uh, uh, patent rules committee meetings that he had was, well, we look at that, we see what it is that the judge does, and then that determines whether it's really necessary to have a hearing or whether the court can simply rule uh, based on that. Well, but you never heard me explain that the reason I need an extra 15 interrogatories is that there are 300 patents and 9,000 claims and 47 defendants. What this rule change does is it adds a new provision that says you don't do a chart anymore. You exchange summaries of uh, the issues and the relief in an email not to exceed 500 words. And then after you get the 500 words from both sides, and this looks for all practical purposes, not unlike what the Eastern District does in some courts where you have five page discovery motions. You send an email with those two sets of 500 words to the court. So now you've had a chance to explain to the court, the issue is interrogatories. We need an extra 15 interrogatories. And the reason we need it is because of the large number of claims or whatever else. So this gives us the ability to get some argument in front of the judge on both sides. The court can then decide, okay, yes, no, or I do want to go ahead and have a phone hearing. But I think that's going to go a long ways to making discovery procedures go not necessarily more quickly uh, than they have been, but it's a way of getting the court the information in a bite-sized chunk so he can do thumbs up, thumbs down, and we can go forward without taking too much of the court's time. So I, it's, it's a change that I'm, I'm actually very excited about because it's tough to, to get those issues across in a, in a four-box chart. Michael, from the outside perspective, it looks to me that Judge Albright constantly tinkering with his rules to try to make it more efficient to support his faster trial schedule. I think that's absolutely correct. He's had the benefit of his own patent rules committee that developed the, the initial draft. Uh, we have meetings constantly where we're explaining, here's what's coming up, here's what works, here's what doesn't work. He's got uh, law clerks coming in, he's got interns, he's got people giving him a lot of feedback. He has a lot of connections within the IP industry with lawyers that practice, but he's given us an opportunity to uh, express what we think works and doesn't work. It's similar to what we had with the Eastern District's local rules committee, but it's focused on just patent practice. And he's getting a lot of feedback from a lot of people on what works. It's also giving him a chance to compare all that uh, and, then, and, and then tell us, well, here's what he sees from his side of the bench. Here's why he thinks this worked. Here's why he thinks this was a logical way of doing things. Uh, and so we get to have a, a two-way discussion with him about what are the needs of the bar? What are the needs of the court? And what's the best way to manage that? Well, one of the, the issues for practitioners I've heard is that they don't see a lot of written orders, so they don't know exactly how things have been done in the past, which is consistent with your chart issue. But he did issue a, a written discovery order here recently. Um, anything to be learned from that? There is. You're, you're absolutely right. We don't see a lot of written orders, and we've, we've said... Um, 
in some of the meetings, it would be helpful to the parties to know what the court's preference is. Do you want to hear these types of things here or here? So Judge Albright will periodically put out orders that kind of gives you some insight into how he sees issues. We don't see those a lot on discovery motions because those are resolved on phone calls, but we did get one recently, and that's as a result of another standing order he's put out recently that says, um, after we have a hearing, the party that I ruled in favor of needs to prepare a proposed order, run it by the other side and submit it with the language uh, that you think reflects what the court did. Well, this is one of the first orders I've seen that does that, where it says, here are the issues presented. And in that case, there were a number of, of uh, rulings and it put down what his rulings were. Sometimes if it's just a text order uh, on the docket, all you see is the court granted the motion, the court provided direction to the parties. Here, it's all in a order so you can tell, okay, well, I may not know exactly what the facts were here because I don't have a motion in response to look to, but I can see an order where this judge said, you need to produce this and you need to produce this and this needs to be available on this sort of timeline. And that is a, a useful data point when you're trying to see um, what is it that the court tends to do on, on these types of rulings. So that's that's been a helpful uh, order for me. I will say it's a little harder when you get, uh, when, you're tr when the judge says, okay, send in an order reflecting my ruling on the motions in limine. And sometimes we have a harder time getting down exactly what the, what the, what we believe, we have a lot more disagreements about what the, what the ruling was on those types of motions. Well, it seems like Judge Albright had a, another defense verdict in his court. So this is uh, two double losses for patent owners in the last, last two weeks. It, it is. And it's, it's similar to the Marshall one in that case, in that the, uh, the jury in this, the Perfectus case, they were arguing that two of Google's Nest smart home products infringed a digital picture frame patent that they had. And the jury was out about an hour. Uh, the plaintiff's demand at trial was only $3 million. That's pretty low for a case that goes to trial. Um, but, but part of that was because Judge Albright had already stricken the request for pre-suit damages before trial. So there, there just was not that much at stake when they got to trial. Jury found they weren't infringed and that all of the claims uh, were invalid. So similar to the Marshall uh, verdict in that way, similar to the Marshall verdict uh, back in April and, and maybe others during the year, this is not an uncommon verdict. Again, you don't see that a lot in the legal media, but double loss, uh, I think you've got a term for those verdicts, don't you, Wayne? I do, it's the jury hates you verdict. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is what we see. If you lose the jury on the first question, you tend to lose them on the second one too, uh, if you're the plaintiff. So, uh, so good day for the for the defendant on that one. The thing that strikes me most about this is that the jury was out around an hour, considering it takes 30 minutes to find the jury room and uh, pick a four four person. It didn't take them long to to vote that they truly hated the patent owner. No, no, it, it, it didn't. And I remember, I think you and I had a trial where the jury came back after 45 minutes and we were hanging our head all the way back to the courthouse and riding up the elevator because we just knew that was going to be a defense verdict against us. And, and fortunately, it wasn't. And if it, if it was, we wouldn't tell that story. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Um, 
Well, uh, one other piece that the, the media doesn't always pick up for is, is uh, the the venue motions that's going to shift things out of the, the Western District. But Judge Albright has one um, from last week. He did. And this one's a little unusual because it's not an inconvenient venue. It's an improper venue motion. And let me start at the end of the opinion. Judge Albright found that the plaintiff hadn't shown that the defendant had a place of business in the Western District. And the plaintiff had several arguments in their complaint, but they only made a couple in their response. They, they said, well, the defendant has employees that are in the Western District of Texas, and they have those employees show up at retail partner stores in the district to do work. And Judge Albright went through that and disagreed. And, and he looked at the N. Ray Cray case, and I, that was actually my case, N. Ray Cray, where the federal circuit said that the fact that you've got employees that are in the district is not enough. Those employees have to be doing, they have to be doing the defendant's work at home so that their home becomes a place of business of the defendant. Well, in this case, uh, Judge Albright said, you're not anywhere close even to the facts in Cray. There's no showing that they did any work for the defendant at their home. That's just where they lived. They would drive to within the district in order to work, but there wasn't a location of the defendant in that district. They simply did things in the district for the defendant. So you have a very detailed opinion by Judge Albright saying, yep, the retail stores are physical places. Yep, they're regular and established, but these facts don't make them the defendant's place of business. The plaintiff didn't point to any of the evidence that you see in other cases saying that the defendant owns or leases the stores so you have a very good opinion here on analyzing improper venue from Judge Albright and explaining uh, a situation where several arguments just didn't get there in his mind. Michael, I like to set this case next to the auto dealership case. You know, when really comes down to what the contract shows between the, the manufacturer and anybody they're partnering with or doing business. And it seemed that in the auto dealer case, you had just really robust contracts here you had an absence of robust contracts. So it's a, it's a good reminder. You gotta look at the documents. I think that's absolutely correct. And the judge points to that. He said the plaintiff didn't, didn't produce any evidence contractual or otherwise showing that the defendant owned or leased the stores or exercised other attributes of possession or control over them. Those two cases taken together show you that Judge Albright can analyze what, act, what the activities are in the district. And if you have the contractual or other facts to support it, then you've got venue. If you don't, you don't. What I would do if I had an issue like this come up in his court is I would take those two orders, put them in front of a, a plaintiff or a defendant and say, okay, now show me where your facts fall on this. Show me what facts we have that indicate that we do or we don't have uh, those indicia of control. Is there a agency argument here the way that there was in the, uh, in the auto dealerships case? And there actually, the opinion notes, there were several other uh, arguments that the plaintiff had that they didn't make, um, which probably indicates the plaintiff didn't think they were worth even raising, but things like authorized access to a co-working space. Nope, that's not enough. Uh, so there, there, there are just a lot of good data points here on arguments that you can try to make uh, on both sides in an improper venue case. 
Well, Michael, once again, wonderful information, uh, insightful analysis. So I appreciate you, you joining us and we'll talk again next week. I look forward to it. Talk to you next week.